It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. After the podcast, check out everything ChristianQuestions.com has to offer. Also see our weekly video series releases at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Now, here's your hosts, Rick and Jonathan. Thomas Huxley once said, learn what is true in order to do what is right. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. Joining me as always is Jonathan, my co-host, for more than two decades. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. So Jonathan, what is our topic for today's episode? Well, this is part one of a multi-part series, and our question is, has the Bible been mistranslated and misunderstood? And our theme text is found in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Okay, so has the Bible been mistranslated and misunderstood? Part one. So coming up in today's podcast, we see the Bible is sacred. So what Bible did Jesus use? And what about the Apocrypha, which is a series of books that appear in the Old Testament of some Bibles? Does it belong there? We'll find out about that in, in 15 minutes or so. Lots of people today wonder why the book of Enoch is not part of the Bible. And why aren't the Gospels of Peter and Thomas in the Bible either? Well, we'll dig into those questions in about 30 minutes. And how about this? What do caperberries That's right, caperberries have to do with Bible translation. What is the best translation for Bible study? Well, folks, stay with us, and we will answer these questions in about 45 minutes. Lots to cover, so let's get going. The Bible is the foundation of our faith. We believe it to be the mind of God expressed to humanity. Its purpose is to tell us things we cannot deduce from nature, things like where we come from, how we got to the present time, and where we're going. The Bible shows us the heights of the plans and purposes of God and the depths of the experiences of sin and death. It shows us right and wrong, light and darkness, and answers questions about eternity. This book is a compilation of writings by many authors over a span of over 1,600 years. Now, in spite of its wisdom, history, insight, and prophecy, many questions swirl around the Bible's authenticity. How were the books of the Bible chosen? Why are there so many translations? Why is there so much disagreement about its message? How do we know it's the inspired Word of God? (laughs) A lot of questions. Join us now as we embark on a search to discover the origins and development of our Bible. And Jonathan, today to do this and for our Bible translation series, we have our good friend and brother in Christ, David Stein, with us again. Hello, David. Good evening, Rick. Good evening, Jonathan. Great to be here once again. It is welcome. wonderful, wonderful to have you, David. It's been a while since you've been on, uh, but you have been on with us many, many times. But uh, just give us a sense of who you are, just for listeners who may not know you. Well, I am uh, an elder in the Allentown Bible Students. I've been uh, a student of the Bible since I've been in my teens. Uh, I have several uh, particular uh, Bible study topics of interest. Uh, one of them is the tabernacle. But I also have an interest in science in the Bible. And in fact, the, the last time I was with you was your very first podcast. We did it on the Bible and science. Uh, I guess it's been about three years you've been doing podcasts since you transitioned from radio. 
And it was a privilege to be part of that. But going back in uh, so over several years, we've covered that subject several times. We've talked about uh, Israel. All of these subjects are wonderful subjects in the scripture, subjects close to my heart. And uh, again, I thank you for the privilege to be able to share with the both of you. Well, David, it's really great, great to have you back. And uh, we have you here because while you're not what we, we would officially call a Bible scholar in terms of the history of the Bible, you're very well versed in it and you can help us to understand and put things together. And that's really, really important. So let's jump right into the subject matter. Let's get started with one of the obvious questions. David, where did the Bible come from? And how did the specific books of the Bible that we have become part of the Bible? Why are they in and others out? So there's a lot here. We're going to talk about something called the canon of Scripture first. And just before you even start with an answer, that's a strange thing, the canon of Scripture. Most of us probably have not even ever heard that phrase. So help us understand, what is the canon of Scripture, and what does it have to do with the authenticity of Scripture? Well, first of all, it has nothing to do with artillery. (laughs) Okay, well, that's good to know. (laughs) But it does relate to the questions, where did we get the Bible from, and how did the books of the Bible come to it? The, The word connects both with the Hebrew and Greek words, and that's kind of an interesting thing that doesn't always happen when we look at Bible words. Now, the Hebrew sources, the Hebrew word, Kana, which means read or stalk. Kind of sounds like canon, doesn't it? Yeah. Kana, yeah. canon. Yeah. The English word cane comes from this Hebrew word. Reeds were used as measuring rods in ancient times because of their straight form. Uh, hence, the measuring or rule of Scripture became known as the canon. Now, that's the Hebrew connection. The Greek connection is even more pointed. And I'm going to quote uh, a definition that is given in Wikipedia. By the way, not everything that's in Wikipedia is necessarily believable or or uh, has any authenticity to it. But this is a case where I think it, it uh, stands out well. And I quote, A biblical canon or canon of scripture is a set of texts or books which a particular Jewish or Christian religious community regards as authoritative scripture. The English word canon comes from the Greek word kanon, meaning rule or measuring stick. And in fact, if you do a, a literal uh, translation of the word of the Greek word, where you substitute an English word for the or English letter for the for the Greek letter, you come up with canon. So this is pretty interesting that canon has both these these Hebrew roots and these Greek roots, and basically it, it represents what we consider to be uh, at least authoritatively and accepted the books of the Bible. Okay, so we see the books of the Bible, and you use the phrase measuring stick. And I think that's important, because the, the, the measuring stick of Scripture is what we deem to be God's holy word. And so it gives us a sense of how to look at life through the canon or the measuring stick of Scripture. Okay, that's good. Now, it's, it's kind of interesting. The Apostle Paul used this word, this word for canon, the Greek word, uh, twice to describe a standard of behavior. So, Jonathan, let's look at those two Scriptures, uh, Philippians 3.16. However, let us keep living by that same standard which we have attained. Okay, let us keep living by that same standard. David, that's the word for canon, correct? That's right. That's canon. That's canon. The very same word. So the same standard. And, and it's talking about a measuring device to say, how is my Christian life being executed? The other use of this word canon is Galatians 6, 16. And those who will walk by this rule... Peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So, David, the word rule there is the same word canon. 
Exactly right. You know, our whole society depends upon standards. When you go to the scientific community, they have standards for speed, for length, for, for every dimension that you can imagine. There are standards in law. And so it makes sense that there should be some standard by which we can measure what authentically comes from God and what does not. Okay, so we're understanding what this canon idea is. So, so then who? it's this rule, this guideline. So let's ask the question, then the next obvious question. Who makes the rules and then decides which books make it into this standard or canon of Scripture? This is very interesting as you look to how the Bible came to us. Now, the rules for canon, canonicity were basically just recognition of certain practical ideals. It's not like any group sat down, all right, they have to be this, this, and that. But there was a general acceptance because of the practical, practicality and applicability uh, to this idea of, of canonicity, and that is inspiration by God. Now, we can describe them in three principles. Okay, let's go through those three principles one at a time. Jonathan, what's the first one? The writings had to be authorized by a recognized prophet, apostle, or someone associated with them. David, okay. thoughts? And that makes perfect sense. You know, in, in the rule of law, in our judicial system, uh, we have judges that make pronounces. Uh, we wouldn't go down the street and try to get somebody else to say what the rule of law is, but rather we, we recognize them as authorities in it. So it's the same way with, uh, with Scripture. Going back, there were prophets that said that they came from God and had a message from God. And so like the prophet Ezra, we accept him. Now, if somebody like the prophet Harry came along and said, hey, I got a new message for you, well, he's got no standing because he simply isn't recognized. Okay, so uh, uh, the recognition of a prophet as a representative of God. Jonathan, what's the second uh, standard here? The writing could not contradict previous accepted books of Scripture. Okay. And, and this makes so much sense. I mean, truth is never at odds by itself. And what we're saying here is that we're talking about the inspired Word of God, words that come from God. They can't be inconsistent. That, that's just inconceivable. And so as we look at Scripture that is revealed over a space of time, we would expect that the pronouncements would be consistent with what went before. You know, for example, Moses said, Thou shalt not steal. Very, very plain. If another prophet come and said, well, you know, it's, it's all right to steal in certain circumstances. Now we have a conflict. And now we have a suspicion that, hey, this guy is really not coming from God. Okay, so you can see there is a standard behind the canon of Scripture. Jonathan, what's the third principle? The writers had to be widely accepted by the church and its leaders as inspired of God. All right, thoughts, David? Well, th this, is, uh, this is probably the most subjective of the three. You know, sure. Who, who are the, uh, the authorities in the church? Well, the answer is those that rise to the top become uh, shepherds of the church. They, they write, they pronounce things and whatnot. So there is a general recognition of those that appear to be directed by God uh, to direct and uh, to oversee and to foster uh, the work of God. Now, it's these people that got together and said, this is what God's word. If we go back into the Hebrew scriptures, uh, we find that there were Jews that, that put things together. We mentioned Ezra a little while ago. Uh, there is some uh, tradition that Ezra was really the first one to put together what we call the canon of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures. Interesting. There were others after that that agreed with him, and, and so it came to be accepted. Uh, likewise, in Christian times, uh, after the apostles and disciples were God, there were men that stood out as being wonderful Christians and good guidance, and they, as a group, kind of uh, over time, got to agree upon what should be part of the Scriptures. So, again, a little bit subjective, the most subjective of the three, but 
yet not not hard to understand how it could happen. Okay, so we've got those three principles. So we're going to go to a quick summary of the canon of our Protestant Bible. But before we do that, we, we're going to be referring to a gentleman, brother in Christ that we know. His name is Jim Parkinson. And he has done incredible work over his lifetime in terms of scholarly understanding of, of Hebrew and Greek and Scripture and so forth. Jonathan, tell us a little bit about uh, Jim Parkinson. Well, Jim Parkinson is a retired aerospace engineer and private textural scholar, as well as an elder for the International Bible Student Association. His interest in scriptural textural criticism began in college when he had access at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, to the Greek papyra of the New Testament. And he's often told that story. I have known Brother Jim since I was a child. And just a quick personal story, when I was 12 years old, he's from California, we live in Connecticut. He had come out to Connecticut for business, and um, he stayed with us over a weekend. And I played in a youth basketball league. I was 12, and incidentally, I was a little kid. I'm still a little man, but anyway, I was a little kid. And uh, he came to my basketball game. And I don't know what it was about having Brother Jim at my basketball game, but I played the game of my life when Brother Jim was there watching. And I'll <laughs> never forget it because there was something about that smile and that grace that he carried himself with. And so 50 years ago is this vivid memory of Brother Jim in my life. Having, so did you dunk the ball, Rick? I did not dunk the ball, <laughs> no. But I, I did do a pretty good job for a little 12-year-old who was shorter than everybody else, I'll tell you that. <laughs> anyway, let's hear from Jim about the canon of Scripture, how it came to be. The Old Testament found in Protestant Bibles is simply the Hebrew Bible taken from the Jews. Then we add to that the New Testament, composed of the four Gospels, Acts of the Apostles, Epistles of Paul and of the other Apostles, and finally the Revelation by the Apostle John. Each of these books is present in the contemporary canon because they've been historically proven to be used by the early church. For example, we have a thousand manuscripts for each of the four Gospels, 500 for Acts and the Epistles, and even a couple of hundred for the Book of Revelation. So the first thing you realize here is that there are a lot of manuscripts available, and we're going to really delve into that very, very shortly. So now we've got a sense of how the canon of Scripture actually came to be. And again, we're going to develop this a whole lot more. See, the flip side of inclusion is exclusion. So what's that all about? We've now just begun to scratch the surface, so now let's dig in. So far, we've focused on how the Bible came to be. What were the criteria for books Are you just included? getting started in your Bible studying? Or are you a weekly listener looking for more after the podcast? Go to ChristianQuestions.com, then click on the Bible Study tab to see our concise companion Bible study questions. You know, it's so important to remember the complexity, the history, the unrest, and the geography in which the Bible was actually put together. What other book do we know of that was compiled over 1,600 years by over 40 different writers? This book is a miracle revealed. What we need to do is step back and appreciate it. So now, as we're going to look at how the Bible came to be and the criteria for the books, there are many writings, both from Hebrew and Christian times, that have been excluded from the canon of Scripture. We want to talk about those, but before we examine those writings, let's show how the current books actually came to be part of Scripture. David, why don't we start with the Old Testament? 
Well, the Old Testament was pretty much established by the time of Jesus. By the way, I think I'll tell a little story here, too. Uh, three years ago, when I went to uh, Israel, uh, we had a, a Jewish man who was our tour guide by the name of Hanukh. And uh, I was giving a little talk at one of the gates of the Jerusalem, and I was talking about the Old Testament. And I, I addressed him, and I said, uh, you're very familiar with the Old Testament being Jewish. And he says to me, David, it's not old to me. <laughs> and I, I said, oh, that's right. That, that's the, oh, there was nothing old. That Jew, the Hebrew Scriptures, that's all he knew. And since that time, I've tried to use the term Hebrew scriptures rather than Old Testament, although both of them are, are uh, certainly relevant. But anyway, uh, the Old Testament by the time of Jesus was pretty much established. And when Jesus made reference to it, he was referencing something that was not in flux, but was, was uh, stabilized and established. Okay, and it's interesting that Jesus talks about the Old Testament in a very specific way. Jonathan, we've got uh, three scriptures uh, off from Matthew. Let's do, go to Matthew twenty-one forty-two. Jesus said to them, did you never read in the scriptures? So there's this overriding descriptiveness of the grouping of these books, and we'll get into that a little bit further. Jesus in Matthew twenty-two twenty-nine essentially goes down that same road. But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the Scriptures, nor the power of God. So now when you got the sense of not understanding the Scriptures, what you're seeing is Jesus saying, There's much in there that you're missing. And then finally, Matthew 26, verses 54 and 56. How then will the Scriptures be fulfilled, which say that it must happen this way? And verse 56, But all this has taken place to fulfill the Scriptures of the prophets. So, David, what about Jesus and the Scriptures? And then let's tie this to where we're heading. Well, we have to remember that when Jesus used that term, he was talking about the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. Obviously, it didn't come about till after Jesus passed away. But the fact that he uses this expression shows that it was settled Scripture, and it was authoritative, and he used it as the basis for everything that he taught. Okay, settled scripture. I like that phrase because he's proclaiming these are the scriptures. So we're talking about Jesus. When you think about it, did he actually quote from every book in those Hebrew scriptures? Well, this is a question you can answer by going through what he taught and tracing it back. The Gospels show us that Jesus quoted from all five books of the Torah or the Pentateuch. He also quoted from eight of the prophets and the book of Psalms. Now, that means that there was quite a bit of Scripture that he didn't quote from. Now, somebody might think, well, if he didn't quote it, does that mean that it's not inspired? Well, the answer is no. Remember that the Gospels give us a slice of Jesus' three-and-a-half ministry, not the whole thing. Uh, let me give an example. Uh, Rick, your past three-and-a-half years of your life, yes. if we got four guys together that would write something about your life, one guy named Matthew would, get, would write 28 chapters about the life of Rick, uh, Mark would write 16, Luke would write 24, John would write 21, 89 chapters of his life. Do you think that those 89 chapters would have everything that you said in the past three and a half years and everything that you did? Um, I talk a lot, so no. <laughs> <laughs> no. I, I, I can agree oh, with that. Oh, thanks. Statement. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> well, that's the point. I mean, even John in John 21, 25 says to us that, you know, if everything that Jesus had taught, the world wouldn't contain the books. That's a little bit of a hyperbole. But here's the point. 
just because Jesus didn't quote from a book is not prima facie evidence that it's not inspired or not important. Very probably, if we had an unbroken account of Jesus three and a half years, I would not be at all surprised that he quoted from every book in the Hebrew Scriptures. Interesting. Interesting thought and interesting perspective on that, one that most of us don't ever really look at. Let me jump in. It's time for a trivia question. Okay. Here we go. Which books in the Hebrew Bible did Jesus quote the most? Okay, so you said he quoted several books. So which books did he quote more than anything else? And folks, I don't know if you've got a thought on it. If you do, write it down and see how you do. We're not going to give you a lot of time. Matter of fact, your time's up. <laughs> Dave, what, what is it? What, what's the answer? Well, he quoted more from the book of Psalms than, than any other book. And that certainly tells us a lot about the value of the book of Psalms in our Christian walk. All right. So interesting. And, and we've got actually in, in the bonus material of our Secure Rewind, we've got all of the citations that he quoted from the book of Psalms. So you want to take a look at that, uh, Secure Rewind, the bonus material. So let, let's move forward now. When we look at a modern English translation of the Jewish Hebrew scriptures, an important question has to come up, Okay. We know that there are 39 books in our Old Testament, but yet the Jewish Hebrew Bible has either only 22 or 24 books. So it's like, wait a minute, this is a massive contradiction, or it seems to be, even before we get started. What, what about that, David? Well, that, that's exactly true. If you were to go online and look up Isaac Leeser's translation, Isaac Leeser uh, was a, a Jewish fellow that put together an English translation of the Bible— um, you, know, you would find there's 24 books there, and that seems to be the number. If you go back to the time of Jesus, it appears that there was 22 books there. Josephus is one of those people that testifies to that. We have 39, so what's the deal? Well, the answer is this, is that the content of whether you have 39 or 22 or 24 is the same. There is no difference in contact. Now, why the difference in numbers? Well, I'll give you a quick example. Uh, within the, the Jewish Hebrew scriptures, many of the books are combined into one. For oh, example, okay. the 12 prophets after the book of Daniel are called the 12. It's one book in the Hebrew scriptures. Huh. So you can see that one book equals our 12 books, content the same. That's the important thing. Now, one other interesting thing, just as a little, little aside, is that the order of books in the Hebrew Scriptures is a little bit different. The last book of the Bible was Second Chronicles in the Hebrew Bibles. They, have, they proceed more along chronological lines, and, and uh, uh, so that sequence is different. But here's the important thing. The content is the same. Don't let the different numbers of books uh, unsettle you. The content is the same. Okay, so we've got, we've got several books, we've got several prophets, and sometimes they're combined, but it's all the same, even if it's a different order— the actual content is, is the same. That's important because we're trying to understand what, where did the Bible come from and how does it all fit together. Good. David, go ahead. All right. I have a quote for you from uh, one of the books of the Hebrew Testament. Okay. This can be found in the Septuagint version. By the way, the Septuagint version is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures that was done around the 2nd century B.C. This is uh, 2 Maccabees 2, 1 through 4. In those days arose Mathathias, son of John, the son of Simeon, a priest of the sons of Jerib, from Jerusalem. He abode in the mountain of Modin, and he had five sons, John, who was surnamed Gaddis, and Simon, who was surnamed Thassi, and Judas, who was called Maccabeus. Well, wait a minute. That, that's not my Bible. 
Where did that come from? <laughs> well, it's not. It's not my Bible either. All right, David. <laughs> well, this is part of what is called the apocryphal books. There are are books that were added uh, to the uh, Hebrew Scriptures around the time the Greek translation was done, and so they do appear in the Septuagint. Uh, but they never appeared in the Hebrew scriptures. So when we use the term apocryphal, that means added. So we shouldn't be too much concerned if somebody starts quoting a scripture and says, well, this is in my Bible. By the way, uh, in my, in my uh, younger days, I used the Douay version of the Bible, and this particular book is found in the Douay version, but it was not found in the original Hebrew. Okay, um, just before we go a little bit further with the Apocrypha, you've been mentioning the Septuagint, and that, in my, to my understanding, is a Greek translation of the Hebrew text. Is that correct? That is exactly correct. In fact, the Septuagint, means the 70. There were 70 Jewish scribes that were authorized by uh, the civil rulers at that time to produce a translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek. And it's not surprising that they would want to do that, because at that time, Greek language was the world was the language of the world. The Greeks were in charge, and everybody spoke Greek. Uh, and that was the language of commerce and the language of history and whatnot. So it's quite natural for them to want a Greek translation. Okay, so we've got this the this Apocrypha and the Septuagint. Give us a sense of, of how these things work, what they mean. You've already touched on that, but you know what they mean and, and, and how they work in some examples. Well, the word Apocrypha is a, is a Greek word, and it's formed from the combination of a prefix apo and kritin, to hide or conceal, Apocrypha. Uh, we actually use the word uh, for to hide or conceal in our language every day. Uh, cryptocurrency, for example. I don't know how many of our, our listeners invest in Bitcoin, but Bitcoin is called a cryptocurrency. Right. It is a hidden currency because there, is, there are um, computer, uh, computer operations that are done to make sure that the security of that, of that uh, currency uh, is maintained. Uh, cryptography, being able to code something so that somebody can't read it. There's the basic word of the word to hide or conceal. So in general, the word apocrypha comes to mean false, spurious, bad, heretical, not intended to be part of the original uh, tra- original scriptures. Wow. Okay. All right. So now what, uh, what about this, uh, the, the Septuagint? Let's get a little bit more on, on that. Well, if you if you go back, there there are several different books. Let me give you a, just a quick list of, of books that we include in the list of apocryphal books. First Edris, Tobit, Judith, Additions to Esther, Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, not Ecclesiastes, Baruch, Epistle of Jeremiah, Song of the Three Children, the Story of Susanna, Bell and the Dragon. Boy, that, that's suspect right away, isn't it? <laughs> Prayer of uh, Manasseh. And first and second Maccabees and the 151st Psalm. So there are all of these. By the way, I, I quoted a moment ago from First Maccabees, uh, which is an apocryphal book, but that appears to be a pretty good book of history. In other words, largely correct recording historical things. But just because it's historically accurate doesn't mean that it is intended to be included in Scripture uh, or validated by God. Okay, see, that's an important point, and I think we need to expand on that a little bit more. So, you know, we're considering the Apocrypha writings as uninspired by God, but potentially parts of them very historically accurate. So let's go back to our friend, our brother Jim Parkinson, on the Apocrypha and get a little bit of his sense of how it all works. The Protestant canon does not add several books and chapters of questionable inspiration. 
Together they're called the Apocrypha. It means literally covered. In other words, not open like the rest of the Bible, inspired. The Old Testament Apocrypha consists of First Estrus, Judith, Tobit, Baruch, and Sirach, the books of Maccabees, and a few additional chapters. Uh, they were never in the Hebrew Old Testament, although parts of it are found in a few Dead Sea Scrolls, but they were added to the Greek Septuagint translation. So the Apocrypha was never part of the Hebrew works, came into play with the Greek translation, which came much later. Okay. Yes, and I might might add it was never accepted by the Jewish rabbis as part of inspired Hebrew scriptures. Okay. So um, at, at this point, David, I think we, we want to summarize some of the reasons to exclude these from the canon of Hebrew scripture. So uh, there are actually six different points uh, that we want to go through, and David, if you want to add something in between, certainly feel free to do so. Jonathan, what's the first point, the summary of excluding? Why exclude these books from the Hebrew scriptures? None of these were composed in Hebrew language, which was alone used by the inspired historians, prophets, and poets of the Hebrew scriptures. All of them were written in Greek between 400 B.C. and 200 B.C., after the last of the accepted Hebrew prophets. So, go ahead, David. This is a very convenient way and logical way to make a division between what's intended of God and what's apocryphal, just simply what language was it composed in. Yeah, you know, you've got the language and also the timing becomes suspect as well. Jonathan, what's the second point? These apocryphal books appear only in the Greek Septuagint. They do not occur in the Hebrew Bible. Okay, so they're very limited in where they are coming up. What, what's the next point, Jonathan? None of the writers of the apocryphal apocryphal books claim to be inspired by God. David, that's kind of an interesting point. That, that's an important one. You know, when we look at the prophets, they say, you know, they, they, the prophecy that Jehovah gave to this prophet or that prophet, or they, they're speaking in the name of Jehovah. We do not find that type of language in any of the apocryphal books. That's fascinating to me. And again, you start to put these pieces together and you say, okay, this is making more sense. Next point, Jonathan. None of these apocryphal books are quoted in the New Testament. Interesting. You know, we already established Jesus maybe did not quote from every single book that we know of, but none of these are quoted in the New Testament. Interesting. What's the, what's the next point, Jonathan? Many of them contain fantastic statements that contradict Scripture and are inconsistent internally. And an example of that, in the two books of Maccabees, Antiochus and Epiphanes, made, is, Antiochus Epiphanes, the guy's name, is made to die three different deaths in three different places. So, That's certainly inconsistent, to be sure. Well, and you talked about the necessity of consistency within Holy Scripture. So that, that is an important point. Jonathan, what's the last point? Well, they contain doctrines at variance with the Bible. Okay, and again, an example, Ecclesiasticus twenty five twenty four. For from a woman sin had its beginning, because of her we all die. Now we know that the Holy Scriptures say, in Adam all die, or the concept of purgatory in Second Maccabees. So, David, when we look at these 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 reasonings, you think, okay, yeah, there is a sensibility as to why things are not part of Holy Scripture. Yeah, and I think what's important here when we look at these uh, these six uh, summary of, of evidences, it is not unreasonable to dismiss them. It's very rational to do so because they do not measure up. We talk about canon measuring, 
they do not measure up. Okay, that's a great, great way to put it. They don't measure up to the standard, which is a very high standard for the Holy Scriptures. So as we can see, the Bible is a complex and ancient book that has a lot of questions and controversies surrounding it. What about the book of Enoch? And how does the New Testament have its authenticity established? We're rolling out new series content this year. Multiple episodes on one topic over consecutive weeks, such as what do we do when the Bible seems to contradict itself? Go to ChristianQuestions.com and search for Bible Contradictions to see the full series of episodes and stay tuned for more new episodes and more new series releases at ChristianQuestions.com. While the Apocrypha is much more of a denominationally based issue, the Book of Enoch and the Book of Jashar have been brought up as other ancient writings that seem to have significant biblical connections. We need to clearly understand what they are and why they are not part of Holy Scripture. So, you know, we've dealt with one, one big section, several books, the Apocrypha. So let's look at this first. Let's look at this book of Enoch and, 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 and what it means and so forth. Let's look at Enoch the character to get started. He's an individual. He's an important scriptural figure, and he's quoted in the New Testament. In Jude, uh, there's only one chapter in Jude, so it's Jude verse 14. It was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. Okay, so Enoch is an important figure. It talks about him prophesying. So we've got something very important there. So we're going to have to deal with the book of Enoch. Uh, David, before we get to you, let's hear from uh, our friend and brother Jim Parkinson on the book of Enoch. Any book referred to by Scripture is worth considering. But how does one know if the alleged copies of the book are valid or even written by the claimed author? Concerning the book of Enoch, the first five chapters seem credible. Jude quotes chapter 1, verse 9, and possibly the first 11 could be. But Enoch's supposed intercession for the fallen angels and his journeyings through Sheol seem utterly not credible. Now, Paul quotes some of the Greek poets in Acts uh, 17.28, but he doesn't imply that they are inspired. And so much of the book of Enoch we certainly couldn't uh, give credence to. David, your thoughts? Well, just because uh, Enoch is quoted, that's not a uh, necessarily a validation of the whole book. We don't know exactly uh, what Jude had back in the time of Jesus. It's clear they had something, and uh, it was something that Jude referred to. But going back even further, the there was no book of Enoch that was ever considered uh, authentic by the Jewish rabbis. It was never, ever included in the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures canon. And uh, even today, uh, the uh, scholars, and I don't want to even say even today, but through the Gospel age, uh, it was never up for consideration to be part of the Bible, either the Catholic Bible or the Greek Orthodox Bible. Uh, as as uh, Jim mentioned, there is a book of Enoch that's in several of the manuscripts of the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. But remember, they are all in Aramaic and not Hebrew. Remember, the one of the um, guidelines that we're using is that inspired stuff was in Hebrew, inspired writings that were in Hebrew. So, and Jim made one point at the very end, uh, is that Paul quoted from some of the Greek poets, 
Yeah. And obviously they were not inspired. So the rule here is that the quotation from another uh, extra biblical source is not a validation that it is inspired. Okay, interesting and important point. But you had mentioned, you know, they're written in Aramaic, and that kind of puts them on the outside edge. But what about portions of the books of Ezra and Daniel? Those were also written in Aramaic. Well, those portions were were from Babylon and Medo-Persia, and there were Hebrew versions of both of these. So, again, just because that they appear in Aramaic, again, isn't is a reason for dismissal. And who would want to dismiss Ezra and Daniel? Yeah, you, yeah. When you look at the <laughs> the amazing uh, prop, pr- prophetic um, uh, content that these books have, and the historical uh, uh, accuracy which with which they they re- represent what happened. So the Book of Enoch. Yeah, interesting literature, but not inspired scripture. Okay, go ahead, David. Uh, Yeah, one more point. Uh, You can go online and look up the book of uh, Enoch today, uh, and it may or may not correspond to what Jude had in the time. Again, Jim made passing reference that the first 11 chapters seem to have some historical basis, but after that, it goes way out, and we don't know exactly when that was added. Okay, so... What we're looking at is, okay, how did the Bible become the Bible? And we we started out by saying there's a very high standard. And when we put these other things up against the standard, they fall short. And that gives us a sense of what belongs and what doesn't. Now, let's talk about another book that's gotten some popular uh, uh, recognition these days. Many of us probably haven't heard of it, but it's called the Book of Jasher. This This book is actually quoted in the Old Testament. Jonathan, there's two scriptures, let's touch on them, and then we'll hear from Jim, and then we'll hear from David on this. Joshua 10, 13. So the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. Is it not written in the book of Jashar? Okay, so it's talking about something, and it's referencing the book of Jasher uh, as a place where it's written. 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 18 is another text where it's quoted. And he told them to teach the sons of Judah the song of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasher. So you've got this historical reference that is being being put out there. David, I'm going to hold you off. I want to hear from Jim first, and then we'll get your comments on this book of Jasher. The book of Jasher, which means book of the upright, is quoted in Joshua 10, 12 to 13, and 2 Samuel 1, 20, 18 to 27. There have been conflicting attempts to forge such a book, but none seems credible. What this means is that we have no early manuscripts to indicate that any of the alleged texts of Jasher were circulating in the early church. Any textual evidence is dated much later into the development of Christianity. All right, so David, make, make that really practical for us. Well, what's real important in what uh, our, our brother Jim said there is that the current uh, manuscripts or the current written records of Jasher we have today all seem to have been written in the past few hundred years. There's no indication it goes back earlier. There are no manuscripts of it. Uh, certainly there was no manuscripts uh, or, or uh, no acceptance of a book of, of any type of a book of Jasher uh, back in the time of Jesus or the uh, Jewish scribes that put the, the uh, work together. So what we have today, what you can find on Google today 
uh, is apparently something that has just come into existence in the past few hundred years. It does not go back to uh, the time of Joshua or Samuel. So then really when they're quoting the book of Jasher, we have no connection between what we recognize now as, hey, this is it, versus what those uh, uh, prophets back then were talking about. Yes, in every way, it is a lost book. Okay, all right, in every way. So, again, pe people give these things attention, say, well, you know, it's an ancient thing, and it's about scriptural things, and it should be part of it. You have to have these things live up to the standard. So we've looked at the book of Enoch and the book of Jasher as two examples. Now let's take a look. Let's focus, because we've spent a lot of time talking about the Old Testament and how it got to be. What about the New Testament? What about the New Testament apocryphal Gospels of Peter and Thomas and others? So there's, we have the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Well, there's also gospel, the Gospel of Peter that was written and the Gospel of Thomas. Again, let's go to Jim very quickly for a short comment, and then David, just take us through uh, some of the putting together of the New Testament. And there are also New Testament apocryphal books like the Gospel of Peter, Gospel of Thomas, even Gospel of Judas, probably written by Gnostics, uh, but they add too many petty and doubtful details to be credible. Okay, now that's a pretty short and sweet comment. So, David, why don't you expand? <laughs> yeah, well, the New Testament apocryphal, uh, among those that uh, Jim mentioned, there are others as well. Uh, number one quality, they are very inferior to the quality of the New Testament Gospels. I mean, they don't give the details of minor inc incidents like the, the Gospels to. Uh, secondly, uh, they're, they are represented by just a few manuscripts. In other words, they existed, but they were not uh, uh, embraced by, the, by uh, Christians back then and copied and recopied where we have a great deal of evidence uh, for the other parts of, of New Testament scripture. In this case, just a few documents, uh, uh, quite a bit. You may remember, uh, I'll tell you a quick little story. Some years ago, my boss called me into the office and he says, David, David, you got to read this book. And he threw the book, The Da Vinci Codes, on my desk. Ah, yeah. And here, this was a novel uh, that was written by um, Brown, something Brown, I don't remember his first name. Uh, and it uh, allegedly uh, was a novel about something that really happened. And in an interview, he said, yeah, it's, 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 it's fiction, but everything in it is true. And he bases a great deal upon several of these apocryphal books. And it's been embraced by a lot of people that don't know too much about New Testament manuscripts and, and history. So this is an example how uh, something that uh, can be deceptive uh, across a wide range of media if it's, if it's accepted. But again, we go back, the early Christians did not accept or include any of these, and they are not included in either the Protestant Bible or the Catholic Bible or the Greek uh, version of the New Testament. You know, and it's also interesting that, you know, you said just a few manuscripts, and in one of the soundbites previously from Jimmy talked about, you know, the some of the books of the New Testament have a thousand manuscripts or 500 manuscripts for the other Gospels. If you only have a few, you don't have that credibility, and the standard, the standard of measure is not being met here once again. All right, good. Well, we have up to this point been discovering how many writings demonstrate that they have no legitimate place in our Bible and the canon of the Bible, which we use, has been pretty well accepted. But the writings are so old. Yeah, you know, and that's, the, that's the, is one of the challenges here. The writings are old. This is ancient, ancient stuff. So how can we be sure 
that these Bible books have not been distorted or changed since they were written. Because, David, we're talking hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years. How can you say, well, look, don't worry, it's all exactly intact? You know, that, that's a legitimate concern. I think all of us, you remember in grade school where you, where you sat in a big circle and somebody whispered a little story and then they transferred the story and then all the way around, by the time it got back to you, it was completely changed and different. So that's a real concern. So one of the obvious ways to be able to find out how faithful what we have today is to the original writings is to go back in time, see what the original writings saying, go back as far as you can and then make a comparison with what we've got today. Uh, Bible scholars have done that. Uh, people that study the manuscripts and the papyri have done that. And guess what they found? We, we really have something wonderful uh, on our hands today. The fidelity to the ancient manuscripts is astounding, considering that thousands of years have taken place. Okay. You, you think God had something to do with that? <laughs> <laughs> and we're, we're in the process of making that point in a very, very big way. And this is thrilling. It's thrilling to look at this and, and just face all of the questions and put them in order. Let's, let's go back to our, our, our friend and brother Jim Parkinson and talks, as he talks about how well attested the Bible actually is. And listen, listen carefully to the numbers and things that he puts in place here. There are fewer variations among the oldest manuscripts than among the later manuscripts, the later being 10th to 16th centuries for the most part. There are about 3,300 New Testament manuscripts, over a thousand each in the Gospels, around 500 or so in Acts and in the Epistles, and roughly 200 in Revelation, maybe slightly more. Perhaps 100 to 200 verses are significantly changed, and maybe only a dozen or two make a big difference. The Sinaitic and Vatican 1209 are fourth century with about 70 fragmentary manuscripts still earlier so there are only a very few verses that remain uncertain now oxford papyrologist peter parsons once commented to me well you know the greek new testament is the second best attested work of ancient history i thought that's wonderful so then i asked what's the best attend attested and he replied why the hebrew old testament of course <laughs> But, you know, th those numbers are, are remarkable, 3,300 manuscripts and over 1,000 for the Gospels and 500 for Acts and so forth. So, you know, th the Bible we use today reflects an amazing fidelity to the earliest manuscripts, and that is incredible news. So what would you say accounts for this incredible preservation? You know, the world has dramatically changed, and we have dramatically changed, and we're saying the Scriptures have dramatically remained unchanged. How is that possible? Well, like Jonathan th said earlier, do you think God has something to do with it? <laughs> he absolutely does. We're, we're looking at the providence of God here. And what's interesting is that there have been some changes, but they are so few as to not make a difference, and just a handful do make a big difference that we're going we're gonna to cover in, in later parts of, uh, of this series. But God's providence is there. And, and Rick and Jonathan, I think it makes complete sense. If our faith is to be dependent upon the authority of Scripture, then Scripture has got to be preserved in order that the Word of God, the pure Word of God, comes down to us. It would make no sense that God would be lackadaisical and there'd be all kinds of things, and then our faith would be based upon something that can be overthrown and, and questioned and, and uh, threatened in, in so many ways, but it is not. It stands up under I impressive scrutiny. It measures up into the uh, historicity of the times, and we've got so much evidence that allows us to have 
of absolute faith that what God has preserved for us and provided for us today is absolutely worthy of basing our faith upon. You know, and and people outside of Christianity oftentimes look at Bible-believing Christians and say, yeah, you're believing this book that was written over all this time, and it's full of errors, and on and on and on. What they don't understand is the factual basis for which we have the Bible. And that's what we're talking about here. Folks, this is big when you realize that it is easy, if you know where to look and what to look for, to prove that the Scriptures are actually intact. David, go ahead. And you know what's nice, Rick, is that you can go back to writings of early Christians from the 2nd century and 3rd century where they quote Scripture. And these are men that, that uh, are, are uh, Christians, they are followers of Christ, they are, are, are very uh, revered uh, and, and uh, very faithful to what they, and, and when you read what they wrote, you say, oh, that, that's exactly the way it is today. So there is this additional testimony that what we have is in fact correct. Okay, Let, let's jump to another part of the proof. And this is a really fascinating—it's all really fascinating, but I love this, this piece, okay? One of the questions that seems to be forever debated is, who wrote the book of Hebrews? There's a lot of debate. We've always said, Jonathan, you and I have always said, we believe the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. Yes, that's okay? right. Okay, now let's hear Jim Parkinson's perspective on this, because his perspective is actually a very ancient historical perspective. There is some scholarly debate as to the exact dates certain books were written. Examples include the question of whether the Hebrews was written by Paul. I've held a manuscript to the Paul's epistles from about 200 AD, giving them a little bit different order. Romans, Hebrews, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and so forth. So already around 200 AD, they knew that Hebrews had been written by Paul. It just took scholars in another 16 centuries to become ignorant of it. <laughs> <laughs> no, and that's part of Jim, his his character. That is, that is part of Jim. You know, for those that know him, he has he has this little wit and little witticisms and puns and things like that, and uh, he revealed it there a little bit. But you know, it's interesting, David. He talks about back in the second century, the the the, the grouping was right in the midst of the writings of the Apostle Paul, and that's a sure sign from early, early, early history. Yes. Yes. And in fact, you know, we don't need to get into this too far, but when you look at the content of the book of Hebrews, it is so Pauline. I mean, it matches yeah. up with the other things that he did that to suggest that he wasn't writing uh, really is to stretch credibility. So, you know, we're looking at this and we're, we're, we're exposing a lot of facts and really, really faith-strengthening ways of looking at Scripture. Hopefully, folks, like you've never seen it before. So you can look at it and say, man, this is awesome. So why do we do all this research? Why is this important to us, Jonathan? Let's go to 2 Timothy 2.15. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. And that is what our job is. And folks, we're doing this multiple-part series on understanding Scripture so we can better and more faithfully and more, more, more zealously accurately handle the word of truth. So as we seek to verify the Bible's authenticity, it's amazing how many details and pathways to positive proof exist. We've established which books belong and which ones don't. Now, why are there so many translations? 
If you love our podcast, show us some love on social media. Search for our handle at CQ Bible Podcast or just search for Christian Questions on Instagram, Pinterest, Facebook, and Twitter. Now back to our discussion. Most of us have never spent a lot of time thinking about how the books of the Bible got there. We do spend a lot of time thinking about what we believe based on our being taught and reading the Bible. This is where the question of translations is deeply important and also really fascinating. So, Jonathan, before we go further, before we put David on the spot again, let's just take a moment to summarize some of the things that we've discovered so far. We've really got four basic points. The present canon of Scripture has been collated by God-fearing people according to an informal set of rules that make perfect sense. Even though it's an informal set of rules, there's a very high standard to those rules. What's, what's the second point? There is ample historical evidence that what we have in our Bible today is very faithful to the original writings and is reliable. And folks, again, when people come at you with doubt about Scripture— understand history is on your side as you look at Scripture. What's the third point? The apocryphal books have been left out of the canon of the Bible for good reason. For very good reasons, because they don't stand up to the high standard that the rest of the Scriptures have. And the final point, again, by way of summary, there is every reason for faithful people of today to see God's hand guiding and guarding the creation of the Bible. I like the way you put that, guiding and guarding the creation, and I will add the content and the teaching and the prophecy and the inspiration of God's holy word. So with all of that put in place up to this point, David, why are there so many translations? And now you can look at translations a couple of different ways. Let's focus on translations from the standpoint of into various languages and then afterwards we'll focus on translations in relation to, you know, what things mean and so forth. But first, let's focus on language. Yeah, and that, that's, a, that's a good uh, good dichotomy to make, that just translation of the Bible into the language of the people and all of the English translations that we have that we'll consider. Well, it's, it's actually an easy answer because uh, we have a scripture that describes this in Matthew 24, 14. Jesus said, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. Then the end will come. Well, now think about that. What needs to happen for the gospel to be preached to all the world, to all nations? It has to be translated into languages that they understand. That's perfectly reasonable, and it was part of God's plan. You you know, it's interesting if you think for a moment about how God understood the need for translation. When we go to Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon the church, the church was anointed at that time and began the ministry or continuing the ministry of Jesus to preach. You remember the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples and they started speaking different languages. What's the point of that? Well, there were so many people there that didn't speak the language of the Jews that they needed to hear it in their own language. So right at the very beginning, God kickstarts the preaching of the gospel by making it available to all of these different languages. Okay, so languages are a big deal, and the beginning of the gospel preaching, the very first official beginning of Christianity at Pentecost, it expresses to us how important different languages are. It's just fascinating when you think about it that way. All right, David and Rick, time for another trivia question. 
into how many languages has the Bible been translated? Okay, I know, I know, a lot. <laughs> Actually, just a little bit of statistical background. As of November 2019, there's now a complete Bible trans there are now complete Bible translations in almost 700 languages. The latest figures from Wycliffe Bible Translators shows that 698 languages now have the complete Bible, up from 683 in 2018. So we're seeing that it's not stopping, it's still increasing. Even more have a complete New Testament up from 1,534 last year to 1,548 languages today, while a further 1,138 have some translated portions of the Bible, up from 1,133. So David, this is just telling us that the work of translating the Bible to make it understandable throughout the world is a massive work that's been going on for a long time. Yeah, if, if God wanted the message to go out, then he would inspire those individuals to change the language or translate the language into their own language. And guess what? No surprise. The most translated literary work in the world is the Bible. The most? The most. Okay, so I got to ask then, if that's the most translated literary work in the, in, in the world, what's the second most? Well, you're going to laugh with this. I, I Googled this. I asked, what's the most translated literary works in the world? And it, it confirms that the Bible. But the second most translated is, are you ready for this? Uh, well, I don't know. Am I? <laughs> Pinocchio. No. <laughs> Seriously? You liar. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Pinocchio has been translated into over 260 languages, so it's the second wow. most translated literary work in the world. <laughs> well, that's, that's interesting, though. It's, it's, you said 260 languages? Mm -hmm. And the full Bible, and Pinocchio's a story. The full Bible, all of these books have been translated into 700, almost three times the number of languages. Folks, it gives you a sense. You see God's hand in all of this, and in, in, the, in the standard from which the books of the Bible were put in place, it really puts us into a better understanding of why the Bible. David, go ahead. Yeah, and when you, ask, when you think about what God is doing in the lives of Christians for 2,000 years, he wants to make his word available to them. I mean, through the Dark Ages, it was just in Latin. The, the, uh, the, the people, the general people that weren't of the educated or priestly or royal classes and whatnot, they never had an opportunity to read the Bible. And then when the Reformation came, what's the first thing that people did? Those reformers, they translated it into, uh, into the local languages so they could learn. So as disciples of Jesus, you know, we want to learn God's will. And he has made it available in our languages. You know, from, from a standpoint of English, uh, I think that there's more English translations of the Bible than any other language. And so we are particularly blessed to have uh, the original languages as well as tools like, uh, like concordances in Greek and Hebrew and Zalinas for us to understand God's will for us. So because we here, we speak English, none of the Bible was originally written in anything close to this. And so we've got these tools as well as these translations to work with. Okay, so it's an incredible thing so far, the number of translations so far. This brings us to the question, though, that we opened this segment with. Why are there so many translations? Now, translations, we've talked about the number of languages. Now let's talk about the number of actual translations uh, in terms of interpretations of Scripture. Why so many, David? 
Well, that's a good question. You know, I never counted. I, I probably have about 20 different English translations of the Bible in, in my library, and there may be many more than that. Probably there is. But the, uh, the quick and obvious answer is that a translator has looked at other translations and he sees or believes that they are deficient in some way. So he wants to make a better translation, a translation that, in his opinion, agrees better with the ancient manuscripts. And uh, so he produces what he thinks is a better one. Now, th this is a very challenging thing because uh, translating from one language to another is not so simple. Uh, you know, in, in um, international conventions that we go to sometimes, uh, we are told, you know, avoid English idioms, you know, because if you have an international audience, you'll use something that, that everybody in English understands. But for uh, uh, Polish in particular, or uh, French, or German, uh, Romania, they scratch their, what does he mean by that? Uh, so we have to be very careful in idioms. And idioms occur in scripture, too. Okay, you know, and, and just English idioms, you know, barking up the wrong tree. Yes. You know, get real. Well, what? <laughs> yeah, chill <laughs> <You> know, out. <laughs> yeah, chill out. Really? I mean, I mean, what is it? Too hot? You know. So we've got to understand that though that that way of speaking actually happened in Scripture. Now, at the very beginning of the podcast, we we asked the question: What do caper caper berries have to do with translations? Here is where we get to talk about caper berries. So, Jonathan, I'm actually going to reverse the order of the scriptures. We're going to read Ecclesiastes 12.5 from two different translations. Jonathan, what's the first translation that uses the word caper berry? It's the Jewish Publication Society translation. Okay, go ahead. Also, when they shall be afraid of that which is high, and the terrors shall be in the way, and the almond tree shall blossom, and the grasshopper shall drag itself along, and the caperberry shall fail, because man goeth to his long home, and the mourners go about that the streets. Okay, so it talks about the caperberry. First of all, Jonathan, what is a caperberry? Because I don't know. Well, I had to look it up. Now, <laughs> everyone's heard of the word caper, right? Yeah. Well, caper and caperberries come from the same bush. Capers are the unopened buds of the bush, and the caperberries are the fruit. Okay, so it's that simple. Okay, so here it's talking about the caperberry as a fruit. Now let's read Ecclesiastes' exact same verse from the King James Version. David, then take us through what the differences are and, and how the idiom thing is so important here. Also, when they shall be afraid of that which is high, and fear shall be in the way, and the almond tree shall flourish, and the grasshopper shall be a burden, and the desire shall fail, because man goeth to his long home, and the mourners go about the streets. Okay, David? So now you notice that in the Jewish Publication Society, it said the caperberry shall fail, and in King James says its desire shall fail. Let me take a step back and talk a little bit about this section of Scripture. Uh, this is a beautiful poetic, Hebrew poetic way to describe getting old. And uh, in the verses 1 through uh, 5, 1 through 6 here, there is a metaphoric and similes that describe all of the challenges of getting old. It, it's really some, some beautiful literary stuff here and is well worth a study on its old. But what has happened here is in the Jewish Publication Society, they translated the Hebrew directly, word for word, and it says that caperberry shall fail. And capers, as, as Jonathan mentioned, are, are things that stimulate appetite. And so, you know, if you don't have an appetite, you have a caper or a caper berry, and now you start to get hungry again, and now you want to eat. 
So what the King James Version has done is interpret the meaning of the Hebrew. Gotcha. Now, the interpretation is right. When it says the caperberry, it's talking about desire failing when we get old. You because know, older, that's what the caperberry does. It that's you, right. right. That's gotcha. right. It doesn't accomplish what it does. But uh, they are absolutely correct in the meaning. But what they have failed to do is to preserve the Hebrew poetry, uh, allow the reader to make the connection themselves. And, and that's where, in this case, the King James Version doesn't really measure up. So, again, idioms are important, and we want to try to understand how all of that works. Okay, so David, again, back on to translations. Take us through this a little bit more as we begin to wrap up. Well, we're talking about idiom, idioms uh, within the Hebrew Scriptures, and this is a really good example. Uh, sometimes Hebrew words are more specific, sometimes they're more ambiguous. And so uh, English translators, or translators in any language, really have uh, a challenge uh, set out for them. I mean, even the English language changes uh, through the years. We could give examples of that as well. And so an English language translation from the 19th century may not have the same import and meaning and carry the same impetus as one uh, today. Uh, and then there's translator bias. Uh, it's very interesting. There's a uh, translator by the name of David H. Stern who translated his work, The Complete Jewish Bible. And he mentions that he does inject his opinions because he says a translator can't maintain neutrality. Uh, nevertheless, his translation is one of the good ones. But that's one reason why there's so many translations is because sometimes they inject themselves in, they want to emphasize something, and so they interpret rather than translate. Now, and that's that's difficult because even if you're trying really hard to just be strictly uh, translational, it's just we have a, a way of looking at things that skews our thinking. And look, we're all that way, and yep. so this is difficult. This is difficult. So that brings the question then. So if you've got all of these different issues, how reliable— how, how, how can we have confidence? How reliable are our English translations of the Bible? Well, mostly they're, they're pretty good, but again, there's shades of meaning. One reason why I had so many uh, translations in my library, most of those translations I acquired before the computer age, and now I can go online and right. look at, at dozens, you know, very, very simply. Uh, but we heard Jim Parkinson say in an early clip that there's relatively few passages in Scripture that demand extra scrutiny and uh, extra scrutiny and study. Uh, but the truth is that translations of the Bible are affected by doctrinal beliefs, and they find their way into translations. And so we have to be aware of that. I mean, even for ourselves sometimes, you know, there are certain, there are certain texts that we call problem texts, that they don't spell out exactly what we believe. And we might be uh, uh, inclined to say, well, you know, this means something else. But if we want honesty in, in our doctrine and in our service to God, we have to deal with the scripture as is exactly as it is written. Again, there's over 5,300 manuscripts available today, so we have every reason to be able to get into the nitty-gritty of these and truly discover, and we've used that word a lot during this. This whole thing has been one of discovery, but we can truly discover uh, what is really intended in a text. Okay, so that's why we compare translations and we look up words, because we want to try to find the most clear meaning. So as we begin to, to, to really wrap this up, we want to hear from Jim Parkinson one more time about best Bible translations for accuracy. You know, you want to study, okay, what's the best, what are the best translations that I should use? Let's hear his perspective on that. 
I think the RVIC, Revised Version Improved and Corrected, is the most accurate. If any other, it would be Rotherham, though it's more difficult if others in the study are using a King James or similar version. The other accurate best translations are Sacred Name Restoration Bible, New World Translation, New European Version, which is Christadelphian, New American Standard Bible, that is the 1970s editions, but not 1995, American Standard Version 19. David Stern, Complete Jewish Bible, and the English Standard Version. Now, he listed a lot of a lot of versions off there really quickly. You can get that transcribed in the Siku Rewind, the, 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 the full edition, our, 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 our Siku show notes. So make sure that you get those so you can kind of take a look at those things and put things in perspective. So um, just one more scripture uh, in, in terms of just putting things in order, and then, David, I'm going to ask you for your final comments. Psalm 119, 105, and 106. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn and I will confirm it that I will keep your righteous ordinances. Okay, God's word's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We're talking about establishing the credibility of God's word. David, just your final thoughts as we wrap this up. Well, we are... Our three-part or four-part or five-part, however, multi-part series that we're going to do has been as a Bible been mistranslated and misunderstood. And before we start getting into some of those other scriptures that we're going to do in subsequent parts, we wanted to establish that the Bible we have today is absolutely reliable, that apocryphal books do not belong in it. We have a long history of evidence of scriptures that's given. It really has been one of discovery. And the key point here is that the Heavenly Father has preserved the scriptures that we use today as a basis for our faith. He's preserved them through hundreds of years, many, many centuries, and we can have great confidence that all of the evidence indicates that we are in a very good footing when we put our faith in Scripture. David, thanks so much. As we wrap this up, folks, just understand that we have something of incredible eternal value when we look at the Holy Scriptures. And it's no accident that the books that are there are there. It's no accident that they've been preserved. It's no accident that God's plan is revealed in all of these things. In part two, we're going to delve into the harmony of Scriptures to teach God's plan as we discover the fascinating history of many manuscripts and begin to uncover mistranslations that are present in many common translations. So we have just begun the journey of looking into the Holy Scriptures, how and why they work, and what we can do to be inspired by them and learn God's plan from them. Folks, this is a wonderful study, so make sure you come back and and, and partake with us. The Bible is inspired. Think about it. Listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions in iTunes or Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Please rate us, review us. We'd greatly, greatly appreciate it. And as we mentioned, coming up next week, Has the Bible Been Mistranslated and Misunderstood? Part 2. Our friend and brother David Stein will be back with us. Talk to you then.